Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. We're so thrilled that you joined us this week. Jasmine's going to be speaking once again with one of our favorite people, Karen Ginsberg. And they're going to be talking about strategies for increasing the impact of animal protection organizations and animal advocates. So that's pretty important. If we're close to a tipping point in this movement, and you know, on my good days, I honestly think we might be. This is the interview that will help us all get there. Mm-hmm. And on this week's bonus flock segment, I will be continuing my conversation with Karen. So as always, if you're a flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, please join us for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And thanks again for all who donated. As we mentioned last week, 2020 was a huge year for us and we do feel set up for success. Thanks to you and your efforts to help us to end the exploitation of animals. Also to help us all get through the pandemic, we are still doing our Flock Friday Zoom calls because the pandemic is still going on. And those are at 4 p.m. Eastern time on Fridays. Sometimes we have guests, sometimes we just have a chat, sometimes we just shoot the shit, but we always end up talking about how to shift our activism. You know, no matter what, we're, even if we're talking about food, it somehow turns into activism because that's what we try to be all about. And we also talk about how to take care of ourselves in these tough times. Some people, you know, if you're down and, uh, and you're in the flock, please join us because a lot of us are down. So we can all be down together. Uh, Three loves company. (laughs) So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates. You can always write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. Well, one of the ways that I have dealt with being down is uh, by baking something very exquisite, very uh, (laughs) high end, very... I am laughing only because I, I have eaten it. So I saw this like... TikTok video. I didn't see it on TikTok, but I saw a TikTok video going around somewhere else and it was for Sprite pie, which is exactly what you think it is. Pie made with Sprite. And it it only had one non-vegan ingredient, which was butter, which is like the easiest thing in the world to veganize. Thank you to our queen, Miyoko Shinner, for that. And so I made a Sprite pie and and it was, uh, I think it was pretty fantastic. I feel like I have really reached new levels in my baking. I think it was both horrifying and kind of delicious. Yeah. Well, it was mostly like, it was like sugary and sweet and it had pastry. So, you know, what the hell? Well, okay. So, so I, I am embarrassed for us that we ate it. <laughs> well, apparently there's also something called water pie, which is Sprite pie, but with water. And it was like water instead of Sprite. Then how is it sweet? Because there's still sugar. There's still sugar and oh, butter in it. Sugar to the yeah, sh- which just shows you. You know, you put sugar and butter and flour together in whatever combination, and it ends up tasting good. Well, and water pie was apparently and by butter. I of course mean Miyoko's. Yeah, it it was apparently from like the you know the Great Depression, the first one, not this one. But uh, it was something that when people were really struggling they would be able to still make water pie. Anyway, so then you told me that there's a fake apple pie that the ingredients are on the Ritz crackers container. So I think I'll make that next. And you actually had not known that Ritz crackers are vegan. Well, I thought I didn't know, but then we, we Googled it and they are. I have never had this pie, but it's kind of legendary. I'll make it for you. <laughs> With or without Sprite. see, we are proceeding in a healthful direction here. Our, it's our resolution. <laughs> For 2021 is to eat uh, the weirdest (laughs) 
pies and make them vegan. <laughs> anyway, uh, so that is definitely an interesting entree, so to speak, to talking about the Great British Baking Show, which you've told me in the past that you are into. And then I started watching it, but mostly because there was a vegan episode recently. So we watched the vegan episode of the Great British Baking Show. So that was sort of my foray into this this show that you're super into. Yeah. And in case you people in the UK are thinking I'm we're saying it wrong, it's called the Great Great British Bake Off in the UK. It is it is wildly popular, I'm sure, all over the world. I know they use eggs and dairy, and sometimes they do use, they do meat things. I don't know why I can watch it anyway. I just translate it in my head. I usually skip the meat recipes. The other, I have no excuse for why I can watch it, but I can. And it's kind of my anxiety watch. And since I have a lot of anxiety, I watch it a lot. And But yeah, they finally had a vegan episode. It was super exciting. And I thought it was pretty good. Like you were complaining a little bit, but it was almost all positivity. Like even when they made the the pastry with the coconut, the judges, Paul Hollywood and uh, whatever the other one is. <laughs> sorry. sorry, other one. In particular, he was enthusing about it, how it was great. And they could taste that it was coconut. I was sure it would be like, oh, well, it's not exactly the same. You know how people always are. But they actually judge things on their own merits. And I just... I mean, it's not a huge sign of the times. Veganism is big in, in the UK, much bigger than here, I think. And and so they should be doing more vegan baking. But the fact that they did a whole episode on it, I, you know, sometimes they do a Danish episode and whatever, like, like they have a lot of special episodes. So it's, it's not, I don't want to get overly excited about it, but I was pretty excited. Boy, it was fun to watch them all using, you know, like tofu. They are not that familiar with it. They talked about nooch. And how delicious it is. And they also used aquafaba, which, you know, uh, which was something that we we know about all about because we've been vegan and they've been not been vegan at all. But there were a couple of bakers who thought it was cool to try out some new ways of doing things. And then there were a few who were just like negative from the beginning. There was really only one who was negative from the beginning. And the rest really were even the one from France was was very enthusiastic. All in all, it was very positive, much more positive than I expected. Well, and I mean, there is a spoiler alert here, but the guy who was just, you know, an asshole from the beginning, the contestant who was an asshole from the beginning about the vegan stuff and just like how he eats meat in every meal and blah, blah, blah. He is the one who ultimately failed the hardest and was voted off the island. I guess I'm, guess I'm, combi- I'm combining shows here. But uh, it just did kind of go to show you that like people who go vegan are their energy and the attitude that they have about it is is going to be ultimately what makes them succeed or not. And last week we did mention on our house, we, we mentioned that we were going to sort of bring to you, the people, some of your favorite biggest vegan tips for starting a vegan life. And we've put that on our social media channels. So we'll report back on that soon. But I will say that one of the biggest tips for making sure that you succeed is for you to have a good attitude from the beginning. Unlike this guy. That is really, I hadn't really thought of that. I was just glad that he he was the loser because he was really nasty about it. But it's really true. That's why he failed. He, he, he didn't want to use his imagination. He wanted, he wanted excuses for why it wasn't good. He didn't really want it to be good. And the other people were enthusiastic. It was pretty cool. And, you know, I'm telling you, this show is addictive. Well, at least for me it is anyway. So be careful if you've never watched it and, and watching it. Though if you're one of those people who can't watch people use animal abusive ingredients, which I totally understand. I think it's very reasonable. Only watch this one episode. 
All right. The other thing that we wanted to talk about was this article. And this is not a cheery story. This is just so annoying. But it's about an article that was in the New York Times. You know, in in a way, it could go in rising anxieties because the efforts that this author went through to answer his question, is dairy farming cruel to cows, which was the title of the article. I don't know whether I could say that he answers it in the negative or whether he just tries to make the negative not matter. This is the stupidest article. It really drove me crazy. I actually saw mixed messages on social media about it, but um, I don't... I guess some people thought it was okay. They probably weren't. They were probably on my social media, but not vegan. I don't know. All right. So it starts, is dairy farming cruel to cows? A small group of animal welfare scientists is seeking answers to that question. Facing a growing anti-dairy movement, many farmers are altering their practices. Then they have this picture of this dairy farmer, Nate Chittenden, who was one of their main features, who's um, in upstate New York which is big dairy country. And like his cows uh, are kind of joined around when he's kneeling kind of awkwardly and, and pretending like he's communing with them. It's just so, it's so awkward. Couldn't believe it. I could talk about this article for hours, so I'll try not to. But one of the first things that was mentioned was about Mr. Chittenden's farmer. You know, I'm sure he's a fine person, except for his complete and total blindness about what he's doing to these animals. Mr. Chittenden, 42, a third generation. They always have to stick in how many generations they've been doing it. Who the fuck cares? Dairy farmer whose family bottle feeds each newborn calf expresses affection for his animals. It's a sentiment they appeared to return one recent afternoon as pregnant cows poked their heads through the enclosure to lick his hand. A, they bottle feed the newborn calves because they take them away from their mothers and they have to feed the milk replacer to keep them alive. I mean, come on, people. Come on, New York Times. Right. And then that they love him because they wanted to poke, lick his hand. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Cows lick things and they're bored. They don't have anything else to do. Mm-hmm. And they also said there was a there was a part in it where he said, I'm in charge of this entire life from cradle to grave. And it's important for me to know this animal went through its life without suffering. He said, stroking the head of one especially insistent cow. And then they quote, I'm a bad person if I let it suffer. It's just the the mental gymnastics that, that these farmers need to go through and the hula hoops that they have to put themselves through is kind of staggering. All right. They do, to their tiny credit, they interview Erica Meyer, who is, of course, you know, from Animal Outlook. And she she gets all the information in there and they do report it on it. Like it, it's this kind of almost inserted. Some of their claims are beyond dispute. And then they go through these claims. Dairy cows are repeatedly impregnated by artificial insemination and have their newborn calves taken away at birth. Female calves are confined to individual pens and have their horn buds destroyed when they are about eight weeks old. The males are not so lucky. Soon after birth, they are chucked off to veal farms or cattle ranches where they end up as hamburger meat. The typical dairy cow in the United States will spend its entire life inside a concrete floored enclosure. And although they can live 20 years, most are sent to slaughter after four or five years when their milk production wanes. Well... Thank you, Erica, for at least, I mean, you obviously did a great job in in getting all that information in here because they wouldn't have done it without you. And then there was this uh, part where there's a, a lawyer for a dairy who describes the images that Animal Outlook came out with in one of their investigations into a dairy. And this lawyer describes the images as staged or taken out of context, which, of course, we're used to hearing that. But it's just such a line that they just say over and over because, you know, just like some some politician in the White House that shall remain nameless, uh, as soon as you start to throw a doubt, people who don't want to believe it will start to believe the doubt instead, which is really just 
It's just uh, such a ploy. It's such a way of dealing with this. I hated this article. I mean, this is the year we really like if, if we ever thought in doing this work that people believe what they want to believe. Well, this right. is the year that proved it. All right. They do point out that the effort to turn Americans against dairy. Just think of the phrasing of that. The effort to turn Americans against dairy. Like, how about the effort to protect animals? Well, there's a lot of ways you could say that. They point out that it's gaining traction at a time when many of the nation's farms are struggling to turn a profit. So we're turning people against things, and they're struggling. Uh, 20,000 dairy farms have gone out of business. They, they, they don't mention the fact that that's largely because the industry is consolidating into huge dairies. And it's the industry players who are driving other dairy farms out of business, though there has been a drop in dairy need as well. So we're driving some of them out of business, which is to our credit. They talk about Joaquin Phoenix and, you know, they how much, how, like, say nothing nice about what he said about the... Um, dairy at the Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. And they also kind of get into how they have determined it, it is actually better for their bottom line to have higher welfare standards. And so with that in mind, it says one experiment sought to determine whether housing two calves together, as opposed to keeping them isolated in pens, could improve their learning abilities. They found it did. And that paired housing also makes them less fearful and easier to manage. I highlighted that part because you know, don't you see that the fundamental foundation of, of normalcy here is fear. So they have to make them less fearful as opposed to just like changing the entire system. One quote from someone who calls herself an animal welfare scientist says, it's really important that we don't just anthropomorphize cows based on our human experience. It's really important that we don't based on our human experience. Really important. But we do know that they can experience negative emotions like pain and fear that we want to minimize, minimize, which, you know, it like it's scary because, you know, these are the whole time I was reading this article, I thought even someone who is wanting to believe the side of the dairy farmers, wouldn't they read this and see that more than once in this article that ultimately comes out on the side of the dairy farmers are calling these cows fearful like don't they see that there are other ways of being and i i worry that i just am like you know a person who thinks differently and 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 it scares me that the normal oppressive baseline is what most people sort of tend to though it's changing that's why there is this article in the first place because it is an example of rising anxieties it's totally rising anxieties it was just so i really wanted to go in into depth and and i know you were horrified by it as well Another quote from somebody in the industry, I don't think you'll find farmers out there who are not trying their best to enhance the care and welfare of their animals. Ah, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, right. And you mentioned the scientists. Yeah, they don't mention, they just say that they're experts, a widely recognized pioneer in the field of animal welfare. She grew up on a cattle farm. She, she works at a university doing research. And all of that research, I'm sure, or a good deal of it, is funded by these industries. That's how this works. That's how all fun animal research works. Well, not all animal research. All, you know, university-funded research is frequently from the industry. Like, like, get with the program here. This is the New York Times, not the diddly, diddly squat news. Uh, are cows that spend their entire lives confined indoors unhappy? Well, yeah, they are. I don't need evidence. I don't need science for that. Put the burden of proof on the other side. Let them prove that the animals are happy in their horrible situations. Don't force the animals to prove that they're unhappy. 
because you'll never find that. Because as they point out, divining the inner life of animals is notoriously elusive. No, it's not. I know when my dog's happy. I know when a cow's happy. I could tell you in two and a half seconds. If you do something mean to them, they're not happy. All right. You have to stop me because I could just talk okay. about this all well, day. Okay. So the article again is called, Is Dairy Farming Cruel to Cows? Yes, it is. That's- just a loquacious oh man gosh. whose weather-beaten hands reflect a lifetime of toil. Right. Okay. Oh, my God. Wow. You can put words together. And then he's the one who says the classic, classic thing like, oh, if they're not happy, they won't give milk. That's such bullshit. Right. Right. Okay. Well, so... I guess we should we should mention that again this article exists because and it was given so much play because it is deemed important to re- report on and that to me is is a sign of success and I'm grateful for the little quote by Erica Meyer even though I'm sure she gave like an hour long interview and that's all they wound up using so no the stuff they used was great it was just like you know they put it in there because you could tell they put it in there because they felt like they had to and they made as little of it as possible and then quoted a lot of people who think dairy is just dandy yeah okay well let's let's move past the article because i can tell that you're upset and and i know that our interview today is going to make you feel better because the uh, the person i'm interviewing the wonderful karen ginsburg has interviewed so many people from the animal protection movement and just really to get her finger on the pulse of where things stand and what what has changed and where we still need to grow. So, yeah, absolutely. Karen Ginsburg understands strategic planning like no one else in this movement. For nearly 20 years, she has used her background in business and corporate planning to help animal protection groups and advocates find the keys to effectiveness. Her book, Animal Impact, Secrets Proven to Achieve Results and Move the World, distills her experience and combines it with stories, tips, and ideas for more than 60 influential advocates to help animal protection organizations and advocates maximize their impact. Last summer, Karen conducted interviews with 29 national and international leaders to identify key trends to assist strategic planning for organizations advancing plant-based eating. This is an interview that will help anyone up their activism and is the perfect way to start off the new year. She will be joining Jasmine right after this. Greetings, everybody. This is Jasmine Singer, and I wanted to make sure you knew about my new book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Look good, feel good, and do good in 30 days. Brand new from Hachette in December 2020. Want to be fabulous? Go vegan. Maybe you're interested in it for the food, maybe it's the animals, or maybe climate change has got you thinking. Whatever your reason, maybe you don't quite know where to start. After all, doesn't going vegan mean you have to give up tasty snacks and cool shoes and a sense of humor in your leather couch? Nope, nope, no way, and well, eventually. Covering everything from nutrition, you will get enough protein, promise, to dating, vegans have better sex, it's true. To fitness, you want to lift a car over your head? Sure. I am joining with the team at Veg News to bust all the myths and giving you all the facts about a plant-based lifestyle. With 30 easy recipes to get you started, the Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan will help you adopt a vegan lifestyle that's better for you, the animals, and the planet. And what's more fabulous than that? Get your copy today wherever books are sold or go to jasminesinger.com slash fabulous. Remember, there's no E on Jasmine. It's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R dot com 
slash fabulous. The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Welcome back to our hen house, Karen. Thank you. Pleased to be here with you and your listeners, Jasmine. I'm a big fan of yours for so many years, and it's always such a joy to talk to you. You have, of course, been on our hen house before, and I'm sure that some of our audience is familiar with your work, but others probably are not because veganism is still growing, growing, growing. So I like to believe that someone's always coming fresh to our interviews. So can you tell us briefly what kind of work you do and how your advocacy is connected to your business background? And then we will parlay into talking about the Veg Leaders Report. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I have a business background. I was an MBA and I was marketing director for a bank and done a lot of strategic planning. And I got into animal protection really to help bring some of that expertise and some of those processes to help animal protection groups be even more effective. So I got started really in sort of the, the mid, you know, 2002, 2003, when groups were really getting into strategic planning. And the purpose of strategic planning is to help the groups utilize their resources in the best ways to get the most impact for what they have. We only have so much money. We only have so much time. We only have so much energy. And the purpose of strategic planning is to take both an outward look and an inward look and then choose what's most important and most promising to do. So that is the work that I have been involved with for coming up on uh, on 20 years, not quite there yet, but but soon. Uh, And that is is where I have been. That's great because I I know that there's a lot of passion in the animal rights movement and the animal protection movement. And we really do need that kind of thousand foot high, like, okay, let's, let's talk about how to be as effective as we possibly can. So that brings me to the veg leaders report. Uh, Lots of questions about this, but uh, again, the sort of thousand foot high view, can you tell us what the veg leaders report is and why you felt it was needed? Absolutely. So My approach to strategic planning is that it should be fact-based and includes data, that we need judgment, yes. We need creativity. We need people's opinions, but those should build off a sound foundation of what is. And that's really been the hallmark of my strategic planning all the way back to when I was doing it in business. And so what I wanted to do was to help organizations looking ahead at this rather challenging time by putting together a base of what's really happening in our field and what do we think collectively are are some of the biggest trends and some of the potential opportunities. So that was the motivation to do the project was to provide a resource to the field to support planning at this time. That was the motivation. Yeah, it's a good time for that too, just to like kind of take a pause and assess and reassess where we need to be putting our energies. So I think that's, that's, that's great that, that you went in that direction. Mm -hmm. And leaders in the field have definitely been doing an amazing job, um, you know, adjusting to our circumstances, doing different things, but it can, you know, it it can be very um, pulled into the day to day. So I know it's, it's helpful for people to have this additional contribution to their efforts to pull up. And, and most of our our major groups are doing terrific strategic planning that this will contribute to what the process was was I was able to engage 29 people, about five or six of whom were outside the U.S. It was it was largely um, in the U.S. They were um, organization heads 
and thought leaders. And I conducted a, about a 40-minute Zoom interview with each of them. I started with a fairly standard set of questions, but there was flexibility to delve into topics that might come up with a particular person. And in addition, I swapped out some of the questions as I went. When some trends started to come, I might probe on them. So for example, innovation was coming up early. You know, We need to have new ideas. We need to test ideas. So I might have asked a little bit more about innovation uh, later in the interviews. Or there were some issues about individual advocacy. And so I might have started to probe, uh, excuse me, dietary advocacy, not, not the role of individual advocates, but our outreach to individuals on diet change. As that started to come up a few times, I started to ask some people a little bit more. So that was the process. And then I had the uh, challenging and fun job of whittling that down to, to what were uh, the key themes and key takeaways. You are my favorite kind of nerd. I just want you <laughs> a giant compliment. <laughs> but I love that you, I can just imagine you kind of like waking up in the middle of the night like, oh, I know what we need to ask them. And I know how to put it in the report in a way that is super compelling and readable, but we'll get to the visual aspect of it later. Who participated in this and, and how did you go about the interviews? So, um, uh, you know, a lot of the names that people would, would recognize would be the heads of, of and, and actually I think the organizations, you know, Mercy for Animals, Leia Garces, David Coleman Heidi at the Humane League, Bruce Friedrich from Good Food Institute. You know, so, so those, so uh, Jasmine, we had, of course we had you, which was a real treat as a, a leader in so many different places. We, we had um, Tobias Lanyard from, from, from Belgium, who many know, the vegan strategist. We had Netta Rosenthal from India, uh, Israel, who was with Animals Now, which is behind the very successful Challenge 22. She's now actually with a, uh, a cultivated meat association. So we really had um, a terrific group of perspectives from um, you know, just the kind of people that I thought others would, need, would want to hear from. It, it really was a network of, of, of peers. Hmm. Let's get into the actual findings, because they're they're really interesting and they're, they haven't, we have not done this particular type of a report before that I know of as a movement. And even if we have the, I mean, I, I realize you do work with phonolytics, but this feels like a new take on the research that even you've been involved with. So I know that the number one trend that folks felt created the most exciting possibilities for animals going forward was this whole world of new products. And this this seems right to me, but can you tell us what opportunities that these products create? Absolutely. And, and you know, obviously it's not news to, to anyone that we have all kinds of, uh, you know, things coming out with impossible and beyond and the, the, the amount of the amount of buzz and, and penetration with new people that this is this has brought to us. But in terms of opportunities, I think this is a real opportunity. You know, the organizations have always been the leaders and are in activating their base to advocate for new products. So I'll, yeah, I'll just pull one out of the air, like, you know, Animal Outlook, which has been very good on getting people to approach Dunkin' Donuts or Subway. And the more we have better products, the more viable these types of campaigns are. I think most of us would have to admit that a lot of the vegan substitutes have, have been sort of okay for vegans, but not necessarily appealing to enough of a broad enough audience in the past to get widespread adoption. But these kinds of campaigns that are being done are even stronger with the kinds of qualities of products that, that we have available now. And that isn't just something that applies to the national groups, but that's certainly something that's good for a grassroots group or a local group 
or even an individual advocate, you now have the opportunity to do more, to take these kinds of products or to talk about these kinds of products in restaurants, in food service, you know, in other kinds of places. To, so, you know, there's a demonstrated market. This is a trend. Uh, this is where the majors are going. And you can you can do things locally as well. So I think that is a good opportunity. There's also more around sampling, you know, to, to kind of coin it old Bill Clinton, for those old enough to remember, you know, it's the food stupid. When the food is good and delicious, people will eat it. You know, we as advocates, we make choices because of our commitment to animals or maybe the environment or health, but the average person eat things because it tastes good. Right. And so historically, I've been a bit of a skeptic of, of kind of just food sampling, like handing out veggie burgers in front of McDonald's. I, I was actually historically pretty skeptical that that was going to have a lot of impact to just sort of give someone something, expect a, a big change. But we've got two things going on now. One is we have better product than we've ever had. So that I think is more compelling. And number two, there's so much more awareness and acceptance of plant-based products than there was uh, 10, 15 years ago that, it, that people have the context and you know they're more willing to try products. And so again, that's something that isn't just something nationals can do. That's something that, that locals and grassroots, and I think Veg Fund has, has funded some of those projects. I could be wrong, but there may be some funding to, to support some of those kinds of kinds of activities. And, and it also le leads into something that has been a trend that actually I didn't talk about in the report, but is one that sort of came out a little more informally, which is we've made a lot of progress in meeting people where they are. Yes, we would like everyone to go vegan right now, but that isn't going to happen. And Faunalytics, back when it was a Humane Research Council, really showed as early as 2005 that the potential for meat reduction and getting people to at least eat less meat, even if they weren't going 100% um, veg or vegan, what had, was a bigger audience and, and, and more potential reduction in animals killed than actually what looked like the likely progress on veg and vegan. And time has proved that out. The number of vegetarians and vegans is still pretty steady. It's you know, sort of in the three to 6%, depending kind of whose survey you're looking at. And we're really not seeing a strong um, upward trend in those numbers, despite all the excitement of all these new products. These products are coming because of meat reducers primarily. Yes, vegetarians and vegans were the advocates, we're asking for things, we're, we're sharing them with others, but without the meat reducers, I don't think we have the products we have. So I'm not saying we should only do meat reduction. Mm -hmm. I think meat reduction is a, is a important advocacy path. Um, I like reducitarian, and I actually think we're under-resourced in terms of reduction outreach in our field. A lot of that seems to be in the health field or the environmental field. I think we could do more. But at the same time, so many of our vegetarian and vegan groups are are helping people. They, they have a vegan ideal. They're moving people towards veganism, but they know it needs to be done stepwise and in ways that are practical for people. Well, I don't want to get too off topic here, but you are making me think of something that bounces around in my head a lot. Like, obviously, if we're animal advocates, we have to recognize that it's not about us. It's about the animals. Just like, oh, people who are upset about Burger King having Impossible, like, it's not about us. It's about 
people who go to Burger King now can get an Impossible Burger. Um, but that being said, said, I do think it's important when you talk about like reducitarianism and uh, meat reduction, I do think it's important that the advocate be able to respect their own authenticity and their own comfort zone as an advocate. So it might not feel like it might not feel right for someone to advocate eating less meat. And I I guess I just kind of want to know where you stand on that. We have to be true to our own uh, you know, our own needs as as activists in order to stay in it for the long run. So how do we balance the fact that meat reduction is strategically effective while also paying attention to like our own needs to advocate for veganism? Uh, I totally agree. I totally agree that people should do what feels right for them. There is room for, for multiple strategies to move us forward, as, as we've seen even in some of the many different groups that go in different directions. There is no one right answer. If there was one right answer, we would have found it and hopefully done it by now. So yes, I would absolutely encourage that if it feels terrible to you to be participating in any kind of reduction advocacy, then just leave that for somebody else. There are people who are going to come from, from different perspectives. And as long as we're not doing things that harm the movement, we'll not go down that path, um, you know, the, pick pick what really fits for you. And if you're really into to definitely vegan advocacy, then what I would say is just be the most effective vegan advocate you can. And we'll talk about some ways to do that later. But, you know, I would look at you know, think about who you're targeting if if that's if that's what you want to do. If you want to do vegan advocacy, you know, there's lots of people interested in, in vegetarian and vegan right now who need help doing it. Or there are people who are interested in our issues like, um, you know, who may be coming now from the environmental movement or other or health that may be really interested and try to take the vegan message to them. I would not want to take a vegan message, you know, if Aunt Sally is just like, you know, a big steak and potatoes person, don't waste your time. You know, take that vegan enthusiasm and the vegan message to an audience that's going to be receptive and then and then leave the reducitarian message, if you prefer, to others who will go with people who aren't ready for the vegan message. Yeah. Okay. That's that's really good sound advice. So given everything that you started to tell us about what what's needed, how can animal advocacy nonprofits leverage the products m- most effectively when we're talking about like the incredible new amount of v- vegan products that I, I used to know all of them, but now please, I have no idea. There are so many. I would have to be, there would have to be like 50 of me reading about them and tasting them all the time in order to stand top of it. So how can nonprofits specifically leverage these products? Well, number, number one, and, and, and this even uh, came from um, one, I had, a, I had a person who used to be on the nonprofit side, but is, is more on the business side, is that we are the best advocates and the power of nonprofits to leverage their members to spread the word. So it's a nonprofit making sure that people know about the products so that they can tell others. A vegetarian resource group is, is one that's very good at this. They, they almost always have a product roundup with lots of new things because, you know, you think, you know, we can't keep up with the 50 new things. Well, certainly other people who aren't paying as close attention as we are, they may not have heard about this new product. They may not know that something is available at, at Burger King or in a local restaurant. So the first I'd say is, is communication. And also I would encourage people, you know, selective communication because there are now so many products, it does behoove us to try to choose ones that, that we think are actually the best ones. And every 
everyone's taste can be a little different, but you know, I would just be sort of selective in touting something that turns out not to be something. Because once we turn people off, it can be really hard to get them back. I'm wondering how many people had kind of early vegan cheese that we'll never see again, even though the products now are, are so amazing. So number one would be to, to tout the products and, and spread the word. Um, the second would be, again, you know, any kind of, of tastings. That can be as small as you know, having people in your home. You know, do not obviously at this particular point in time, but when, when life gets more back to normal, you know, can you have people over for dinner and, and, and share products? Or listen, maybe you could do like a virtual tasting. What about some kind of virtual vegan cheese tasting where you, you know, you, you do something kind of fun and different and have the products be part of something bigger and social. So it's really maybe not just about the food, but part of an experience. And then again, I think working with local businesses, local food service, uh, you know, school cafeterias, et cetera. Again, all of which are more challenging at the moment since you can't go in and sit down with people. But I think making sure these people are aware of the products, you know, seeing if they might be willing to try the products, that those are all you know, practical things that people can do with our, our new products out there. All great advice. I love that. I love the spin that you have on how to do this virtually because that's definitely yes. been, yeah, that's been like a thing, you know, for every every single you know, person who's alive right now, it's been, how do I transition what I do into COVID times? And with that in mind, other less positive developments that people felt created opportunities for changing the world for animals are indeed those scary ones, COVID and climate change. So how can these dual disasters be seen as creating opportunities? Well, certainly nobody would wish COVID or climate change on anybody, but there has been a silver lining that the increasing focus on both of them is starting to create some receptivity and opening the doors with savvy businesses and politicians. People are, some people are starting to see the need for change in animal agriculture, and that is uh, creating receptivity to hearing more about factory farming and the issues of factory farming. In addition, it's creating new allies that as these issues are coming to the fore, we're better able to align with environmental groups, with health groups, with a common message about factory farming, about meat consumption. And so one of the exciting trends after uh, the products that people mentioned was the increased amount of collaboration that is going on, uh, not only within, but also now beyond our movement to bring together advocates from multiple fields with, a common, with common interests to advocate for change. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there we ha we kind of have to be reflecting what's going on in the planet. We kind of have to be staying. It's funny because when you think about animal advocacy, it is sort of a mixture of keeping up with the times and creating the times, and you know, having that dance always point to what is strategically best for animals. And I know that the potential for collaboration was also identified as important to animal advocacy. And there has been, historically, there's been so much resistance from other organizations and movements to collaborate with animal organizations. I'm thinking particularly in the environmental realm. Certainly back in the day when I started working in animal advocacy, there was like just eye roll versus, versus eye roll versus eye roll. Do you see that shifting 
Well, the the kinds of collaborations I'm hearing about suggest that people are finding their common ground in in environments and and animals. And you know, it's interesting. At the one hand, you know, we've been skeptical that, or we've been disappointed that the environmentalists haven't done more to embrace us. But to tell you the truth, historically, environmentalism was not a big motivator for veg eating. Now, one could say maybe that's because we never made the inroads with the environmental groups, but it is somewhat, it has been difficult in the past to get people to adopt change for issues that can feel far off. Listen, we have trouble getting people to change how they eat who have legitimate near-term health issues. You know, that's what a struggle it can be to get people to change how they eat. So the surveys that we've seen in the past always showed um, animal issues and health issues as the leading drivers of veg change with environment you know, barely, barely registering. Um, I suspect that would change if we look more recently. And so I, you know, I think part of the, the issues may have may have been that they just didn't, that they didn't see it on their side that we were really part of what they were doing. And part of that may just have been skepticism about us. And part of it may just been that they were skeptical about actually getting the kind of changes we're now able to get. It's taken the kind of tectonic shifts we're starting to see in awareness and focus to climate change. And part of that is coming from younger people, as it always does, thank goodness. And, and part of that is coming to some of the rather visible signs we're seeing with fires and the you know big hurricane seasons, et cetera, et cetera, that as this issue comes to the fore, it's easier to find our common ground with the environmental groups. Mm. Well, I hope so. I hope that's right. Uh, as difficult as it's been, you know, th- to really swallow that reality that it's hard to partner with groups that aren't necessarily vegan. It's hard on both both sides. It's hard for the environmentalists and it's hard for the animal rights groups. Do you think that the other difficulties that we're talking about, the difficulties of 2020 have created in atmosphere where change can happen? Yes, there's definitely much more of a sense of urgency as COVID uh, you know, and, and factory farming are linked to just production systems and food systems that are creating problems and will continue to create more problems. So this is this is sort of a new window of opportunity. Hopefully, this is a window that will stay open. You know, as you as you suggest, it's not without its pitfalls, and there definitely are concerns among advocates about you know, do we just go from uh, factory farming to you know, quote unquote, sustainable farming or whatever we want to somebody wants to call it? You know, do the animals stay at the forefront, and do our issues you know continue to get the attention? that they're supposed to get in full and not just kind of a partial? Or do we get something that has people switching from beef to chicken because of concerns about uh, you know global warming and emissions? So it's not, it's not an easy path. It is an exciting path. And again, you, know, you talk about what can people do with, with small groups and, and as individuals. You know, now there's more um, opportunities, again, locally for people to, to work with local environmental groups or to bring these things together and to go with advocates maybe who are interested in environmental and try to work together on things like having change in school cafeterias and, and things like that. So the, the road is never easy, but you know, I think we were seeing some light on this one that we haven't seen before. Well, okay. And staying in our own lane for, for a moment, what are the areas where it was felt that the movement most needs improvement? So the one that came up, which which I think is kind of a bad news, good news, there were really two. The first one was diversity, equity, and inclusion. So the so the bad news is you know, we you know, have some we don't have a great track record here. I mean, we, we know that we don't have um, 
a strong representation of people of color, especially in the leadership of the movement. You know, we've known that for a very long time. It's, it's not news. The other bad news is we haven't been able to do a whole lot about it. Either we haven't chosen or we haven't succeeded. Um, I won't speculate on that. But the good news is that there's real focus on it now. And so many people were excited about the attention. We're excited about the, the progress. They're excited about groups like Encompass that are focused on this animal for farmed animals in particular, that, that organizations are taking this seriously and are doing a lot. And it's not just about, you know, bringing in people because we should be more representative. Mm -hmm. It's not just about bringing in people of color to reach communities of color. That's that's too narrow. It's easy to think that, that, well, you know, we, if we're going to reach a broader base, we need to have people, you know, who, who reflect those groups. And that's, that's sort of that. That's great, but it's even more. Just bringing different people around the table with different experiences, with different references, contributes to the other area that came up as a need for focus, which is which is innovation. That you know, if, if everyone it kind of sits around the table with the same experience base, it really limits the creativity and the new ideas we're going to come up with. So, so it's an area we need to. To focus on, we got a lot of work to do around uh, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. But it's it should pay off in just so many ways, both for the people who are are valued more, are included more, as well as for the contributions that they're going to be able to make in so many ways. I could not agree more with that. <laughs> and what would you say was the most controversial finding, and why? So the most controversial finding was the concerns about the role of dietary outreach. And let me sort of state kind of the polls and then I'll talk a little bit about my own thoughts. So I had people blanketly say to me that individual dietary outreach is a waste of time, that we have spent millions and millions of dollars and years and years and we have barely moved the needle and that it is the institutional outreach and getting people to improve welfare standards, to adopt vegan options. These are the kinds of things that are creating change. And that's really what we should be doing. So th those are the polls. That's not my, that's not my opinion. Mm -hmm. So those are the polls. And let's talk about where this comes from. I mean, where this comes from is a really important focus on what works. Because we do want to think, how do we help the most animals as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible? That's, that's what we're all about. You know, it's important to, you know, keep in mind, and this harks back to our early discussion, it actually isn't about how many vegetarians and vegans we create, although that's nice. It's about how many animals we save. And sometimes the way that to, to do that, you know, may not be exactly what we think. And so how, what is the most effective way to do that? Now that said, I think there are a couple of things going on that I wouldn't take such a draconian position around dietary outreach. Number one, if we hadn't done the dietary outreach we've been doing, we would not have the advocates and ambassadors that we have for veg eating who influence others, who create the demand for products. Businesses 
didn't create the original demand for veg products. It was people asking, you know, asking for these kinds of products. And there was an interesting quote. I heard a talk from um, Seth Goldman, who was the founder of Honest Tea and uh, is also, I believe, chair of the board of Beyond Meat. And he said, in looking for innovation, he said, look where the advocates are demanding things because it shows a market inefficiency. So here's like a real recognition that that kind of, you know, it's institutional, but it's also driven by the individual um, people we've created that, you know, he's recognizing that's important. So that's that's an important dietary outreach. Number two is the businesses need the market. So the more we continue to advocate to individuals to, to want these foods, to purchase these foods, the more we help these businesses succeed. So that's important. Uh, we are we are ambassadors. We are food vegan food ambassadors. We are brand ambassadors. That's an important piece. And the other piece is that things are changing. And just because something has been one way historically, as times change and the culture is more receptive to to vegan foods and vegan eating, then we have better opportunities to continue to succeed more, especially if we keep looking at our strategies and continuing to refine and enhance them. So so all of those are good. And what I really liked was... um, what uh, one of the one of the people talked about that I think some other folks also supported was there are places those two really go hand in hand. So when we're doing institutional outreach to say a food service, a corporate food service, or a a school system, it's a two pronged thing that we we want to work with the institutional part to get that product in there, but then. Are we maximizing the utilization of the new vegan foods or, or the, the eating of the new foods in that cafeteria? So are we able to have point of sale signage? Are there things about you know, how the food is displayed that we're also putting individual outreach and corporate outreach together? Or are we um, engaging people for dietary outreach and then making sure we're cultivating in the way that turn them into activists and funders, which so many do become. In fact, one of the comments somebody else said is, yeah, these people who are, who are you know, dissing dietary outreach may have come in through dietary outreach to begin with some of them, not all of them, but but that was a comment. So it's more than just, we we don't just create vegetarians and vegans. We create advocates, we create ambassadors and and we create donors and we create staff people, you know, who, who come into organizations. So what I would say is I would not take a black and white. I think I would um, urge people to always be thoughtful about am I doing the most effective thing that I personally will enjoy doing? Again, so this goes back to your early comment. Not everyone should be doing institutional campaigns. Not everyone should be doing political campaign or political you know, legislation, uh, that kind of thing. Not everyone should do that, but there's a lot of promise there. And if you're somebody who is interested in those kinds of things, you may want to look at them and just think about where can I both enjoy what I'm doing and have the uh, have the broadest impact? And especially if you're looking at individual dietary outreach, I think it just behooves people to think about what are the most effective campaigns? You know, are some of these integrated things effective? What about some of the online kickstarts and intensives? Or are there innovative ideas I can bring that I think can take individual dietary outreach to a whole new level? And then you got all of the results from all of your talks and you were 
given or tasked yourself the sort of the Herculean task of compiling it all into a, an analysis and a report. And I think it is a fascinating uh, glimpse into your brain to see the way you put it all together. But also, I'd love to know about what you were, th- what your analysis was, what ideas were suggested that you felt were the most promising and why. So this was, yeah, this was interesting. I mean, you know, you're talking to, to 29 of the most accomplished, smart, successful advocates in the field. And how do you do justice to, to picking and choosing among the many things that came up? So in terms of some of the ideas I, I thought about, uh, often they built on themes that were coming elsewhere. So for example, one of the themes that came out, you know, we, we talked a lot about the collaboration with the environmental field and public health and other fields. And you also mentioned the fabulous increased collaboration within our own field. So I love the ideas that built on that. So for example, there's an international group that is bringing together organizations from different countries to adapt political strategies. Now, obviously, every country uh, is somewhat different or even quite different in the nature of how their governments work, what the culture is and the politics. But the idea that we could come together to take best practices and successes from some countries and build on them together and test them and use them in other countries is just so exciting rather than us trying to reinvent the wheel in so many different places. So that was one that I loved. Um, I, I love collaboration in general and sort of as a form of effectiveness and efficiency. But again, other people had already talked about the, the success of collaboration. So that one was a natural. Also, um, looking internationally for just a moment, was the success of institutional campaigns in the U.S. Uh, has suggested that there are even more opportunities in Europe. And, and these have been going on in Europe for years. I mean, Albert Schweitzer Foundation in particular, I know I've, I've talked to many years ago about the work that Mahi Klosterhalfen and that that team has done. But there's even more that can be done on some of these corporate campaigns to, to move things along. The pandemic has shaken things up a little bit. So the U.S. campaign for, for uh, chickens used for meat is one that uh, folks are looking forward to getting back to. That's uh, part of the Open Wing Coalition, which has had a lot of great successes and looking at how to continue to move that forward in these difficult times. And uh, another one that I liked was quantifying the impacts on climate change. Businesses in particular are about dollars and governments are also about spending. So while climate change is a hot issue and we've got kind of a qualitative buy-in that people see fires and weather and they're open, if we can also start to show the dollar impacts of of what the costs are going to be to not fix it, what the benefits are fixing it, I thought that was a really terrific idea. And, and, And as you said, that also probably comes from the nerds are us or geeks are us. I'm not sure which is which, but anything about quantifying is always going to appeal to me. And beyond that, it seems like you generally favor internationalization. How do we achieve it? And what what do you think it will bring to the movement, particularly at the political level? So what I really liked um, that, that, that came up is, you know, the, the, the international collaboration is, is going on and you know, U.S. organizations are, are participating. You know, there are places where you know, U.S. organizations might lead, um, but even if we are leading, you know, it really behooves us to respect and give leadership to other countries, uh, the, the personnel. It's easy to say, you know, we've done it here. We know what works. Let's let's tell you. 
and or let's tell other other people. And that's true in terms of we can share best practices, we can share things that have worked, but other countries are, are equal partners in terms of bringing their own ideas and having their own unique understanding of of their countries and what it's going to take to succeed. So I'm actually not criticizing anyone. I'm not aware of any particular efforts where I'd say, well, people, you know, the U.S. group overplay or anything. I did have someone who had been in this kind of a role where they were working with overseas who felt in retrospect she would have managed it differently. So that is actually advice from one of the participants that she felt that that maybe it was a little a little too much, I don't want to say paternalistic, but but it wasn't quite the right balance and that there should have been more to kind of even the, the playing field. So that said, that was a comment that was had, but in general, the collaborations are happening. I mean, Anima International, which actually was a group I did not know before I got into the project. It was actually somebody somebody else recommended I, I speak with them. They've already got an alliance of, of European countries um, either primarily or exclusively, I'm not sure which, that, that are already meeting as equals and sharing and having people take things forward. And it's not everybody marching in lockstep. So it can be that they're working on common issues or common themes, but, but con- organizations are adapting to the needs and situations of their country to, to make it work. So I think that's pretty exciting. I mean, I think there's, there's much to be shared in best practices and what's worked and common ideas, but there's usually an adaptation for, for local markets. And, th- and that would be true in the U.S. as well. I mean, if somebody were is based in Montana, they're going to do some things a little, they can take some best practices, but they're probably going to have to implement a little differently than somebody who's in New York City. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So just sort of switching gears to something we mentioned at the beginning of the call, which was that you are passionate about data. So given everything that you know and everything that you have been able to ascertain from this report, how how do you think the animal protection movement can improve its use of data? You know, it's interesting. Uh, that's actually been one of the ex- most exciting trends that I've seen. I've been in the movement since about 2001. And with lots of uh, credit to Che Green, uh, of uh, who's, who's currently on the board of Faunalytics, but was the, co-found- was the founder of what was then um, Humane Research Council, the fact that the field is increasingly using data is so key. We need data and information to help us help us apply our efforts most effectively. And it really comes from making it part of the organization. That's generally going to come from leadership and it's going to come from making sure that data is not just part of an annual planning process, although that's a really good place to start, but also um, is included on a year-round basis. So let me maybe make that a little more concrete. As organizations are doing their strategic planning, There's all kinds of data from Faunalytics that talks about our audiences. Just just one study that um, at this point is a few years old, but still really valuable for veg groups, is the study on people who stop being veg. They try it and they stop. And the study came out with results that that 2%, when given a fairly rigorous definition of, of being vegan or vegetarian, as opposed to just, do you consider yourself vegetarian or vegan? 2% 2% were actually vegetarian or vegan. 10% had tried it and were, had, were no longer doing it. And a decent percentage of those people were interested in going back to it. So that has some really interesting implications that retention 
is key. So if I were doing strategic planning, if I had not used that study before, that would be an example of a study that I'd want to have uh, folks reading and thinking about, you know, how do we as an organization strategically support not just the attraction of new vegetarians and vegans, but actually help keep them and, and keep them in the fold, which then gives us more of the potential to activate them into advocates and funders, as I mentioned early. So that would be an example of, the, of a kind of study. It's been out there for a while, but there's lots of other research and, and in, on every issue and for free at Faunalytics, that there's information about companion animals and, and adoption and spay-neuter. There's There are wildlife studies. There's animals used in labs. So I would want, as part of an annual process, or if you don't have an annual process, just start now, to do some kind of review to figure out what research is out there that could help inform the way we're designing our efforts, our campaigns, our programs, so that it really meets where people are and what are the best practices so we can optimize what we're doing. So that would be kind of a, a startup foundation piece. Then I would look for a more, pe- like a periodic review. So there's a couple ways that that can work. Phonolytics, which, which is the only nonprofit uh, dedicated to animal protection market research, puts out a number of independent studies throughout the year. So certainly every time a new study comes out, there would be a chance to have someone in the organization go through it and say, are there some relevant implications here that we should talk about you know, with leadership, with staff? So examples of that is you know, studies have come out this year about covid about an animal product impact scale, which is, you know, we talked earlier about products and I'd love to come back to this a little bit more about, you know, which products would save the most suffering. As these these research things come out, that could be an opportunity to say what's new or what's different or what could just make it periodic. You know, once a quarter, have somebody kind of look at, you know, what's all the new research that's come out this quarter on our issue and does it suggest any, you know, adjustments to our strategies or our tactics that could make us more successful. So that's the external research. The other piece, of course, is internal data to the extent that, that there can be tracking and that the sheltering field has made huge progress on this with, with tracking intake and, and what happens to the animals. And that's been hugely powerful in improving the, the number of lives saved. So external data and internal data really it's a process that needs to be built over time. Nobody's going to become an expert at it tomorrow, but over time, being an expert in in data and and information as an organization is is just very powerful. Oh, that's all really, I actually just want to, um, I, I, I think I just need to sit down and write my thoughts (laughs) out about that because that is a lot of information. And, and yet one of the things that you bring to the table is is your business background, as you mentioned earlier, but a lot of people in animal advocacy, myself included, don't have that business background. So when I hear your analysis, I'm emboldened, but I'm also like sometimes a little intimidated because there's so much there. And so I guess I have two questions for you. One is I really appreciate the way that you get this sort of dense information across, but do you have any advice for someone like me who who wants to be able to better understand these business concepts and business speak, which, you know, it's it's kind of opaque for people like me. So my question is, how, how do we enhance our skills to better understand the business aspect? And then the second question will be about how you 
get the message across with your visuals. But let's take the first one first. Business and me? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't do great at it, Karen. So, what what would you suggest? So, yes, I definitely understand how business and data can be intimidating. And, and I'll just touch on the data real quickly before I go to the businesses. Is on the data. You don't have to take on the world at uh, all at once. You can you know, go to Fonalytics or, or your listeners can go to Fonalytics.org and, and Google your subject, your, your area of interest, and just read one study or sign up for the weekly alerts and just wait till one thing comes across that looks interesting. They come with summaries. So you don't necessarily have to parse through, you know, 10 pages of, of academic speak. Hey, even I'm challenged with that. And, and I have a pretty strong background. So no one should feel not adequate or inferior if they struggle, but we do give summaries. So, so start easy, um, start with something that might be fun or interesting and, and make it small. Um, in terms of business, you know, my, my last uh, visit to, to our hen house was was talking about my book, Animal Impact. It's Animal Impact, A Secrets Proven to Achieve Results and Move the World. And in that, I take my business marketing background and I distill it into key lessons that can be applied for animal protection advocates. And I break it down into, uh, I hope not too much business speak, but you know concepts that are, that are easy to understand. So even things we've touched on earlier about, it's about our audience. And we need to you know, help them see benefits and barriers if they're going to change because they want to. I am not my target audience. We are different from the people we serve. These are core business concepts, but we can talk about them in a way that is understandable and very actionable for individual advocates all the way through uh, major organizations. The book includes all kinds of examples and stories across all the issues, companion animals, farmed animals, wildlife, their individual advocates up to, to major organizations. And the book is now, I don't know, the book has been around, I don't know, 2012. So a lot of the, the players have changed and there are a lot of new stories, but the concepts remain the same and the examples illustrate them as well as they ever did. So um, not only would I recommend the book, but I'd like to make it available to our Hen House listeners, the electronic version at no charge. Oh. We will put that information on the uh, show notes for this episode. There will be a code that people can use. It comes from a site called Smashwords. You'll have to just set up a free account, but you can get it in any version for, you know, Kindle compatible, Apple Reader. And I would just love, love your listeners to, to download this. You can share that code with friends because I would really love to get that information out there to as many people as possible. That is so cool, Karen. Thank you so much. It's such a useful resource. It's everything. I, I mean, you are just an incredible wealth of knowledge. And I hope that you stay on. By the way, when we're done, I have a few additional questions. But I do want to go back to your visual work. Yes. And our bonus content will be available for our flock as well. But I do want to go back to the visual work because I know that that is something that like really is important to you. And it also really calls to me and it makes the aforementioned data and business information a lot more digestible. So can you talk a little bit about how you use art and sort of those flow charts, those very visual illustrative flow charts to get the point across of what you're doing? 
Yes. So I got into the visual work right around 2014 when I saw other people including hand-drawn illustrations and design elements in different kinds of materials. It was, I think it was probably some kind of professional development program or self-development program I was in that I started to see that. And I thought, oh, that looks like fun. I could do that too. So this harkens back nicely to the theme you've brought out about people choosing their path and choosing you know, ways in which they can be an advocate and enjoy it. And so I thought it looked like fun. And I found there is a group called the International Forum for Visual Practitioners, which is an association of people who use these visuals, uh, whether it is to uh, live record presentations or meeting discussion, or to facilitate meetings, or to create infographics. I found the association, and I did information interviews with a couple of folks who were in my area who did this work to learn more about it. And basically, the advice I got was, you know, start doing it, you know, dive in, don't be shy. And there's all kinds of training. There are all kinds of books. And I'll I'll share some resources again for the page, the people who would like to do hand-drawn visual work that they can explore different ways they could move forward. So to be honest, I got into it because I liked it. (laughs) That was really the appeal. But why does it have value? The reason it has value is that we, most of us are visual thinkers, So when we see diagrams and when we see illustrations, we comprehend more quickly. We can also see relationships more easily. So think of a, of a piece of paper where you know, you've got things going in different directions. People can take in the whole. People can see how something on the left relates to something on the right, or they can see that some things are bigger and some things are smaller, or some are in different colors. And compare that to like reading a Word document and just having you know, line after line after line after line of text. It's a different level of comprehension It's a different level of engagement. And when people do it, it helps with their own processing and understanding. And you do not have to be an artist to do this. If you can draw a line, a square, and a circle and at a point, you can get into some simple stuff. And I actually actually teach this in organizations is I teach people just in a couple hours how to become proficient in using visuals to advance their thinking and move forward. So that's sort of what it is and how I got into it and how I use it. And it, it's more engaging because it gives people a different way of looking at the information. So again, think about maybe also a talk. You're listening to a presentation and maybe there are PowerPoint slides. So there might be a visual aspect, but they come and go. A graphic recorder creates a cumulative picture of the whole talk. And of course, Jasmine knows this because I had the privilege of, of recording several of her book talks, which was absolutely terrific. Uh, yeah, I loved that. So like more than anything on that book tour was when you were with me illustrating live. It was so cool. And and a comment you made that, that I love that, that has stuck with me is you said that even as the speaker, 
looking at the illustration showed you things about the talk in terms of how it was coming across and the meaning was being conveyed that you you wouldn't have seen without it. So it even has a, a role for speakers. So it creates something that is engaging. It gives people something to see and it leaves them with something that reminds them of the key ideas and that they can share with others. Now, right. I'm someone who spent years and years and years and years before this being in meetings and writing bullet points on flip charts. And how many of us have been in those meetings and we write the bullet points on the flip charts? And yeah, that's of some use. But at some point you have a room full of flip charts, which can be really hard to discern very much because it's pretty overwhelming. And how many people ever want to look at those notes again? Pretty much nobody. Even if they're typed up, even if you know their time is invested to turn them into Word or PowerPoint, nobody really wants to go back and try to sort through reams and reams and reams of bullet points to try to find the meaning, whereas visuals show people the meaning in a much quicker to grasp way, in a way they enjoy more going back to, and a way that makes it much easier for them to share key concepts with, with others. So that's the, why this is useful in meeting. It promotes more creativity, more innovation. Uh, it is a way to help with our thinking. And that's our best, our best tool. We need to be the best thinking people as animal advocates. We don't have the resources that the meat industry has. We don't have the entrenched culture of years and years of, of um, you know, people buying from, from pet shops or, or people wearing fur. Our adversaries are normally better funded and have entrenched opinion. And so we have to be the very best thinkers that we can be to make the best choices. And so visuals contribute to taking our thinking to a higher level. And that's why I'm so excited about having this for animal protection organizations. You know, when I really thought about why I do some of the things I do and, and how I would articulate is that animal advocates deserve to have the very best tools. We have such an important cause. We have such wonderful, dedicated people. We should always have the very best tools at our disposal to get the results that we and animals deserve. Mm -hmm. Well, I totally agree. And I think, you, you know, with that, you're doing something that nobody else has done. I have one final question for you before we jump into the bonus content. You've been mentioning faunalytics. And am I right that this report was not actually a faunalytics specific report? Is that, that right? Is that is correct. I, I am board president for Faunalytics, but this was a my, my, my organization's priority visions. This was a priority visions report. And it was different. Faunalytics does do some, this is qualitative research, and Faunalytics does some qualitative. I would say theirs tend to be a little more structured and a little more scientific, or a lot more structured and scientific in terms of making sure samples are representative and, and the highest quality research. This was a different kind of, of project. It actually is a semi-structured interview. It's a little different. It was a little bit more of a, you know, snowball sample of people I know and who led me to some other people. So Faunalytics does do does do qualitative, but but they also do, in addition to, to very high quality, structured and scientific qualitative work, they do a lot of quantitative surveys as well. So they do things like surveying the public to learn about attitudes towards understanding of COVID and COVID messaging. They do research on what people are funding and how likely, what, what do they fund currently, what else might 
might they be willing to fund? Interesting finding from that was companion animal funders are potentially likely to fund farmed animal nonprofits and causes. In addition to the studies that they conduct, they collect in, in a free library studies from all around the world. So they're covering, you know, they're getting things from all over on all kinds of issues. Some of them are academics, some of them are other organizations. So they have a complete comprehensive base of free research that that people can access at faunalytics.org. Well, amazing. There is a wealth of information at Faunalytics, and I am a big fan of Faunalytics. I feel like, you know, you and I are similar in the sense that we we do like eight different things that we could be interviewed on. <laughs> and, and I like I like the places where it overlaps, but this particular report, you know, I know we went long on the interview. I hope that our listeners got a lot out of this because I certainly did. The way you organize it is really useful. And the name of the report is Corona to Collaboration, Innovation to Inclusion, Issues and Opportunities in Farmed Animal Advocacy. And if you can please repeat again the name of your book, also how people can access this report and how we can support your efforts. Absolutely. So I will be making a summary version of the report available. We will post a link to that on the show notes for the episode. We will also put the book is Animal Impact, Secrets Proven to Achieve Results and Move the World. For people who would like the free electronic version, we will have the free code and link to the show notes. In addition, for folks who want the hard copy, easiest way, is is just to go to Amazon and uh, Google, um, excuse me, and search on Animal Impact or the website if you would like to learn more about the book, including uh, a lot of people's testimonials and such. It's animal-impact.com. And if you go there, you can still get the links over to, to, to Amazon and you can still get the link to, the, to get the free one, but you got to take the code from the R Henhouse page. Thank you. That's so generous of you, Karen. I hope that you stay on for a few minutes so that I could chat with you a little bit more for our bonus content. But in the meantime, I'm sure we'll stay in touch. And I appreciate all of the various ways that you change the world for animals. Thank you so much for joining us today on Our Hen House. Thank you for having me. It's been a real treat to be with the listeners. Our Hen House has a family of podcasts. In addition to the Our Hen House podcast, which you're listening to right now, you can also listen to the Animal Law podcast or the Teaching Jasmine How to Cook Vegan podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear and what's not to like, please, please leave us a friendly review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us tremendously because that's how we grow. And that's how we reach more and more people with information on how to change the world for animals. Thanks for listening. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is from meetingplace.com, the center of my plate column by Lisa M. Keefe. And the name of this particular entry is Take the L. And by L, she means loss. And doesn't that make you happy? And, you know, good for her for taking the loss. And what she's talking about is something that many of you may have already heard of. And that is the, the direct action everywhere. Unbelievable stunt that uh, they got on Maria Bartiromo's Fox News show, or he got on, posing as the new CEO of Smithfield, Dennis Organ. <laughs> and and I mean, the piece is unbelievable. 
he just basically goes out there and admits to all sorts of, as Lisa puts it, falsified chicanery over the course of a six minute interview. And, you know, he basically admits that that factory farming is and, and the slaughter plants are causing these enormous outbreaks of, of COVID. And of course they are. It was quickly found out sometime that day, but after it had gone up. I mean, that is hilarious. Hilarious. Kudos to DXE and Matt Johnson. There are some people in the movement who who love this. Some people who think maybe it's not really going to change it. You know, I never get into that stuff. We're in favor of activism. Unless you're doing something really, really bad, like harming people. I uh, have no problem with it. And actually, I, I, like, I don't know how many people this will uh, influence, but a lot of people probably didn't hear the disclaimer, which is great. And and anyway, like, it's just so hilarious. As she says, think about it. They didn't change anybody's minds with their little act. And as I said, I don't know whether they did or didn't. I bet they might have had an influence. I bet they might have. A lot of people watch Fox News. She Doubts anyone who agrees with TXE's point of view watches Fox News. That's not really the point, is it? We're getting people information, and it actually is valid information. And so maybe their point of view will change. And as we've noted millions of times in the past, people's attitudes towards animals do not track political party or perspective very exactly. There may be tendencies, but the fact is, there are people who care about animals in every uh, part of the world and in every philosophy of politics. And if we can reach some of them, some of them may be harder to reach than others. But if we can reach some of them, that is so cool. I just love this story so much. She does not. The thousands of people who have seen it over the last week, she says, are either delighted or decidedly pissed off about the stunt itself rather than the message, which, after all, was just a retread of DXE's mantra from its founding. But maybe, uh, well, not really, because it was specifically about COVID, but so it's not really a retread. There are probably a lot of people out there who haven't heard it, and I don't see how this could not make them think. Nobody's going to introduce anti-ag legislation because of what they saw in that interview. Well, that's true, but, you know, like, it could be part of a part of an effort. Nothing she says denies that this was the coolest thing ever. Nobody other than those already doing so is going to boycott Smithfield or any other company. Huh, I don't know. She's not advocating for a return to the ignored and it will go away policies of past decades, however. Well, yeah, I, I would say that you really can't, Lisa. <laughs> you know, it's over. But I do love that you took the, the loss. She wants um, everybody to remember, though, that the activist groups are doing effective things, even though she doesn't think this was effective. She's just saying that it would be counterproductive to give this one too much more attention than it's already gotten. Well, that's true. So thank you for doing and <laughs> Give me a chance to talk about it because, God, it makes me happy. I, I just love watching it. If you haven't seen it, you kind of have to watch it, whether you think it's effective activism or not. At this point in our attitudes towards animals, getting the word out there to that many millions of people, I don't know how that can have some effect. All right. Meetingplace.com. Some interesting information in Hannah Thompson Weeman's column this week. Heads up, more calls to ditch meat on deck in 2021. Well, you probably knew that. That's probably true. But there's one she's speaking of specifically that I was not familiar with, and I'm really glad to know about it now. One driver, she says, of that narrative, the, the anti-meat narrative, that I believe we need to be paying close attention to is the United Nations as it gears up to host a food systems summit in September 2021. 
The FSS is being convened to, quote, launch bold new actions to transform the way the world produces and consumes food, unquote, in order to drive progress toward the sustainable development goals. Well, clearly, she, as I, would expect that the United Nations, if they're actually doing that, would want people to stop eating meat. It's interesting how they just automatically know that this is what the campaign is going to be. They're as aware of the big problems they're causing as anybody. But it's not just her awareness. She also notes that one of the FSS's five action tracks is titled Shift to Sustainable Consumption Patterns. And the EAT Foundation's Gunhild Storiaden is at the helm as the chair. That name and organization should ring a bell from January 2019's EAT Lancet report which used some dubious methodology to call for drastic reductions in consumption of animal protein in its prescribed planetary health diet. Well, that was a very, very effective report. It, had, it was not dubious at all. This is exciting. I want to find out what's going to be happening at this food system summit. And I think it's something to keep a really close eye on. She is keeping a close eye on it because she mentions that she sat in on a few pre-FSS webinars that have already been held. And the tone toward meat is definitely not positive. Maybe we should be keeping an eye on those. Uh, get this anti-meat perspective and this, uh, you know, coincidentally, try to save the fucking planet perspective into this program. And it sounds like it's going to be there. Something to look forward to in 2021. All right. Amanda Radke from Brief Daily, one of my favorites, and I'm sure yours as well, which is a column in Beef Magazine. Uh, this has this to say, lab meets move forward, a final analysis for 2020. And she try, she's pretty upset about this. She has, quote, long lamented about my issues with these products. Do you limit, lament about or do you just lament? Anyway, that's not important. It's great that we have many options to feed a hungry planet. What I vehemently disagree with is how these fake meat companies use false marketing tactics to disparage traditionally raised beef. What the fuck does that mean? You know, it means dead animals in order to, that's what they call it now, traditionally raised, in order to gain consumer acceptance for their imitation products. You know, imitation products are kind of flying off the shelves. So no wonder they're, they're worried. So she's collected a few um, articles and I think it's pretty interesting. She goes on to say, considering all these factors, I am optimistic about the beef industry and firmly believe that beef demand will remain robust despite these external factors working against us. But, you know, the fact is that all of these headlines that she's gathered, except maybe one, support the idea that she should, they should be scared out of their socks. Quote, lab meat is getting closer to supermarket shelves. That was on Bloomberg and just, you know, was a report on how this is this is booming. It's, of course, based in the Singapore uh, event where Singapore became the first country to allow the sale of cultured meat. And all good news for, for us, I would say. This is the bad one. Squawking about lab meat. This writer, John Carlson, said, no, when I think of tasty food preparation, the only bioreactor I want involved is a heavy iron skillet, the kind my grandma Smith used. Why are they always bringing in their poor grandmas? Through that bioreactor, fully supplied with the bioreactor fuel called lard. <laughs> she transformed typical chicken chunks into fried chicken worth dying for. All right. So, you know, that's not very good, but it's a column. You know, it's not a news story. And it's from the Muncie Journal. <laughs> so I'm not like she had to go that far to find an article that was sarcastic about about the new product. So, um, yeah. All right. Muncie. 
We'll keep it in mind. We'll leave you off the list until the bottom for adopting new products. All right. A post from Bangkok in the Bangkok Post, raising the stakes with lab-grown meat. Also reporting on Singapore, also positive. Your first lab-grown burger is coming soon, and it'll be blended. This is for the MIT Technology Review. And, you know, at first when I saw it, I thought, oh, no. Because when they talk about blended proteins, my experience has been that they're talking about blending either plant-based animal, uh, faux animal products or uh, lab-grown animal products with meat derived from living, breathing, suffering animals. But that's not what they're talking about. Neil Firth, uh, the author, writes, Growing meat in a lab is still way too expensive, but mixing it with plants could help get it onto our plates. So if they're going to mix lab-grown meat with plant-based meat, well, I'm in. This restaurant will be the first ever to serve lab-grown chicken for $23. And this is just uh, about the Singapore incident. They don't tell how, you know, it's hard to know how much $23 is when you're eating out in Singapore. I don't know whether it's expensive or pretty reasonable. It doesn't sound that expensive, does it? That's, of course, the Eat Just product that, that has been okayed for sale in Singapore. Meat grown from cells moves out of the lab. This writer for Axios says, what we eat and how we make it has enormous implications for the health of humanity and the planet we live on. Meat and fish grown from cells could make for a more sustainable food supply, but they still face scientific, regulatory, and consumer challenges. Well, if those are the the articles that she's putting together, I would say these people should be getting very anxious these days. Because, <laughs> like I said, except from the one from Muncie, is Muncie in Indiana? I'm not even sure. I'm sorry. I should have looked that up. But except for the one from Muncie, we're good. Everybody seems excited. So that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content and join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays, where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer, and be safe out there. Social distance, stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.